Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we are going to explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of date rape. Welcome back for another episode of LA Not So Confidential. How are you, Dr. Scott? Good. It's it's raining in Los Angeles <laughs> a lot. And interestingly enough, I'm not, I mean, everybody is so patient with our ads, but like I'm wearing my Vessi shoes and they're perfect. Yeah. Like no, yeah. no shit. I'm not shitting anybody. I'm actually wearing these incredibly comfortable waterproof shoes. And LA is just such a weird place to get rain because nobody's used to it. So we act like idiots. I'm like, do I know how to walk in this? Do I know how to, yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) The dogs are all looking outside. Like, what do we do? I don't understand. My dog is not having it. Anyway, welcome back. I just want to encourage everyone to please check our live events page on our website. You will get all the information related to live events coming up this spring and summer, like Parapod Festival and of course, CrimeCon UK and anything extra that we're doing. That link is in the show notes to our website always. And we're so excited to hear from you guys. I'm starting to get messages of I'm going to be at the event in London and it's really cool to hear that. So please let us know, hit us up on social media and we cannot wait to see you guys there. Yeah. And our discord channel is popping with discussion. <laughs> it is amazing. The, the it's actually lighting threads. up right now. Well, that's people, so cool. People are chatting at this moment. <laughs> I love it. Well, let me tell you about our last episode in case you haven't had a chance to listen. In episode 129, our documentary review episode of the month, we watched Sins of Our Mother. We recounted and reviewed the Netflix docuseries. It's only three episodes. And those three episodes dive into the timeline of Lori Vallow's extreme descent into even more extremist religiosity and the delusional thinking that cost many people their lives, including her children. We also reviewed the types of filicide. And of course, we give our two cents on the various players, commentary and completely what the fuck moments. Yeah, I mean, there really are some. And this is actually, we took a step really outside what we usually do because we're usually pretty particular about not doing cases that are currently in right. the the legal phase but this one is this one just really needed to be discussed because it is incredibly yeah. egregious. You know, we kind of talked about that in the episode and I've just noticed like even just in the last week more docu series of, you know, cases that are currently being adjudicated. <laughs> I'm like what is happening? I I don't know. I guess it's maybe maybe it needs content, but in a way some of it, oh, I don't know. It's kind of it yeah. gets squishy, right? It gets squishy with the legal system, but Well, and it's um, got to be well like produced. kind of yeah, like old news by the time, you know, all this other stuff is unraveling yeah, yeah. On, on TV, especially those trials that are being televised. Yeah. So we'll see. But tell us about this week's episode, Dr. Shiloh. Lead us in. Yes. So you and I have covered sex crimes in a number of ways over the years. We've talked about female homicide, female sexual homicide, a number of different paraphilia. We also did a three-part series on internet sexual offending. However, we've not covered the basics of a adults that commit sexual assaults against other adults. 
And I think this is a great opportunity to lay that foundation as we sort of drill down into the specific phenomenon of date rape, which is our topic today. So having said that, why don't we go ahead and just sort of define date rape and we'll see how that evolves throughout the episode. But we're also going to be referring to that as acquaintance rape. Acquaintance rape, you will see that and hear that in the literature. So we'll be going back and forth. But acquaintance rape essentially is when somebody, a person knows, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a friend, a classmate, or even someone they just met uses coercion that can include drugs or alcohol, violence or threats to force unwanted oral, vaginal or anal sex. And when this happens in a dating relationship, we tend to call it quote unquote date rape. And Dr. Mary Koss, who we will hear more about later, adds that quote, sexual coercion is defined as unwanted sexual intercourse or any other sexual contact subsequent to the use of menacing verbal pressure or misuse of authority. So she expands on that definition even a little bit more. So we're going to circle back to our previous episode to bring some points forward that are still very salient to this conversation and then re-expand into what specifically makes this particularly difficult in the legal system and the reporting system, all of that. Going to give you a little bit of a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about sexual assault, rape, the use of substances to induce unconsciousness, for purposes of sexual assault. Yes. So just giving you a heads up that we've got a couple of examples of it that are very, very egregious. And we're actually mm -hmm. like a little bit of, I had to step back and take a, a breath myself. And, you know, we also think that it's just important to lay down some historical perspectives for this foundation that we're talking about. And when talking about date rape, you know, it is absolutely its own unique form of sexual assault. We might take it for granted in this day and age that date rape or acquaintance rape is this phenomenon all on its own and that it's perfectly acceptable to report it as a form of sexual assault or rape just as if one had been raped by a total stranger, but that has not always been the case at all. True. Yeah. I mean, very similar to like when it used to not be illegal to rape your spouse. Which is just mind-blowing, right? Which was not that long ago. It was, was not that legal. long ago. Thank you. Yeah. Throughout the 70s and 80s, there was this beginning of more willingness and attention to acknowledge issues associated with domestic violence and the rights of women in general, you know, but it was a really slow start back then. First, we saw the emergence of education and mobilization to combat rape, and that happened a lot on college campuses, thankfully. Yeah. And then it was not really until the 1980s, the early 1980s, that date rape really started to assume a more distinct form and definition. But even then, it really wasn't inclusive to less formal dating relationships or acquaintances who were considering yeah. casual sexual relationships. And by the way, this whole thing about when it used to be illegal to rape your spouse, it's always important to remember that the double-edged sword in our country of states' rights mm -hmm. plays a very big role in this because, yeah. you know, constantly we're reminded that some states are very behind others. Like there are some states that got it back in the 70s and other states that waited another 25 five fucking years mm -hmm. to get on top of this. And right now, and this is a whole other episode, but talking about child brides, and that right. is a big deal that children are being, that I'm not even going to say children are allowed. I'm going to say adults are allowed to marry children. Mm, there you go. In some states and that is just mind blowing. So yeah, trying yes. to get everybody up to speed is a challenge, right? Y yes, absolutely. So in terms of 
date rape in this area of study. Fortunately, in 1985, psychologist Mary Koss and her colleagues conducted research on college campuses that raised awareness of date rape really to just new heights. The publication of Koss's findings in the popular Ms. Magazine informed millions of people of the scope and severity of this issue. In this article, she debunked the belief that unwanted sexual advances and intercourse were not rape if they occurred with an acquaintance or during an actual date. The acknowledgement of these statements were very powerful, and it was a call to action from Dr. Koss to women to really re-examine their own experiences. And as a result of this, many women began to reframe what had happened to them as acquaintance rape, validating essentially what they had felt prior, that they too were indeed victims of crime. And the results of Dr. Koss's research were also the basis of this other book in, that was published in 1988 called I Never Called It Rape. And that was done by journalist Robin Warshaw, who also has been acknowledged in a lot of research for her book being very groundbreaking as well. It's kind of mind-blowing that the paradigm of no means no mm. and, and the very intricate and meaningful subtleties of that statement are only a recent emergence. If we sit back and think of how this wasn't the standard for so long, it can just get really uncomfortable very quickly. And yeah. I want to come back later on to what you just presented, this idea of realizing something decades later was an assault, a crime. And even sure. for some people that may have perpetrated them, not realize True. like, oh, I engaged in that and yeah. didn't realize what I was doing because it was accepted. Yeah. Ooh. Really Definitely. Yeah, it is. And we, you and I say recently, because we have lived through these decades, I wonder if 1988 sounds really, really far back for some folks, though. You know, it's it, it's all relative, but That's a for you and point. I, yeah. I mean, certainly our perspective is like we either grew up through this decade or were becoming adults in this decade. And that just doesn't feel that long ago, really. So historically, I think it's also not just important to talk from the academic point of view, but we should also add some context through one of the first victims to put her story and her face out there. So when she was just 18 years old, Katie Kostner agreed to be on the cover of Time magazine to share her experience of date rape. This was 1991 that the article came out. And let me give you a little context to the tone of the times with this quote from the article. Women charge that date rape is the hidden crime. Men complain it's hard to prevent a crime they can't define. Women say it isn't taken seriously. Men say it's a concept invented by women who like to tease but not take the consequences. Women say the date rape debate is the first time the nation has talked frankly about sex. Men say it's women's unconscious reaction to the excess of the sexual revolution. Wow. So I think that just painted a picture of just when these uncomfortable conversations started happening, sort of when we go to uncomfortable places, whether someone thinks they're being attacked or they have to be defensive for themselves or for a whole gender, <laughs> where, you know, some of the thinking can go and how that can come off. It's hard all the way around. You know, that defensive stance that comes from those male statements that are responding. I mean, that's just, it's just such a defense. You know, it's just this inability to sit in the gray that you might be a perpetrator. Or let's just get basic that, that a, a woman might have the ability to say no and autonomy over her body. What, what sure. a concept, right? I know. 
I know. But for background on Katie, she was a freshman at the College of William and Mary in Virginia when she started dating another freshman at that college, which also very small and at the time known to be very conservative. Katie had introduced him to her parents just the week before the night that she was raped. And on the night in question, she invited him to her dorm room where they danced and they kissed. And then she drew a boundary after some sexual touching. She stated that he wanted more and she said no. And then she asserts that he forced sexual intercourse with her and that he has always recounted that the interaction was consensual. He took her to brunch the next day. Oh, how nice, right? Yeah. So ultimately (laughs) she decided not to press charges, but went to the school who ultimately determined that some kind of sexual assault took place and responded by restricting the man to his dorm room. (laughs) Okay. Stay in this non-rapey zone. Okay. Just stay in your dorm room. (laughs) Right. Right. So, I mean, it's just the most minimal intervention, I guess they could, Mm -hmm. I don't know what they're trying to do, I guess, cross a T or dot an I, but Katie was very disappointed that he was not expelled. And at that time, she then decided to go public with the story. And it's not an overly remarkable or salacious story about date rape, but that is the whole point. And to go public with a seemingly run-of-the-mill acquaintance rape incident led to decades of advocacy for Katie. So she's the subject of a 1998 HBO movie, No Visible Bruise, The Katie Costner Story. And she's lectured for thousands of schools and corporations around the world, including speaking to the Department of Defense, the United Nations, as well as a number of Ivy League schools and athletic teams. Katie has been the architect of sexual misconduct response systems, model policies, and education and training. She's also the creator of the National Gender and Sexual Misconduct Climate Survey. And her testimony on Capitol Hill was really instrumental in the passage of federal student safety legislation, including the Victims' Bill of Rights and the Campus Security Act. And that was just in the U.S. She's also done a ton of international work with countries like India and China. So Katie is definitely, she still speaks on this. She's a world-renowned expert in this area, and it really has been more of her life than not since this happened when she was 18 years old. But let's turn to the research and the psychology behind adults who rape other adults. So sort of pivoting, not so much just looking through the lens of date rape, but rape in general. And in Western societies, we tend to have a pretty limiting definition of rape, the non-consensual penetration of the vagina or the anus. That's what we get. And in the U.S., at the federal level, it is defined as the penetration of the vagina or anus with any body part, object, or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person. And then when we get to the state level, it again varies wildly here in the U.S., The sources of penetration can be a number of things like a penis, a finger, an object. And then the target of the penetration is also inclusive of the vagina, anus, or mouth. But in some states, it's still limited to only a penis that can be the source of the penetration for rape. We see you, Georgia. Yeah. Actually, to pick on Georgia for a second, Georgia still considers rape as between a man and a woman only. If rape was between two men or two women, then that ends up being charged as aggravated sodomy or sexual battery, which we know it's not just calling it something different, but it could carry less serious penalties. Well, because of course, we're lower beings on the scale of importance. And all that being said, there's been a lot of great movement in the state of Georgia over the last two years. And I expect to see some real change emerging on a number of levels, especially this type of stuff. So there's some really 
great people that are out there working on change in this very format. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're looking at you, Georgia, but we know you can do it. As far as stats and facts go for the crime of rape, we have a lot to cover. So I would encourage anyone who's interested about more information on this beyond what we're talking about today. Please check out our research page on the website. We have tons of links for fascinating articles. But as always with the research, we want to give you a rundown of some of the bullet points and stats around these acts. So buckle up. We're yep. going to jam through these things, but it's it's really intense. Approximately 35% of women worldwide have experienced at least sexual harassment in their life. And in a survey of women who had experienced sexual violence, 14% had experienced attempted rape. And tragically, still today, less than 40% of women who experience sexual violence will seek help. And even more striking is that less than 10% will seek assistance from law enforcement. So that's saying a lot about the stigma of this crime still. Rape is known in research areas to be a particularly complex crime to dissect. And there are large parts of the world where rape is rarely reported. In some of those countries, women are not likely to have their assault even recorded if they do decide to report. And this is because of cultural bound strictures that place some extreme social stigma on women who have been raped or those that have been subjected to violence. And much of this fear stems from the fear of being disowned by their own families. There are countries that consider any non-consensual sex to be rape. However, many others will classify a sexual rape as only if the act exceeds a particular or certain threshold of violence. And those thresholds are heavily influenced by the culture at large. That's amazing to me. Like it has to yeah. get to this level of you getting the crap beaten out of you for yes. it to really count. I, I'm amazed by that. But since we're talking about, you know, other countries around the world, some will acknowledge spousal rape while other countries will refuse to. Some countries will count any report of rape. However, there are others that will only include those incidents that are are able to proceed to a legal trial. In many countries, male-on-female rape is the only thing that's counted, while others will also include track and address allegations of female-on-female, female-on-male, and male-on-male rape. There are countries where group incidents or gang rapes count only as a single incident, no matter how many rapists were participating. I mean, I just think here, at least we got it right. Like, each penetration can be its own, like, act of rape and count. So, yeah, that's just that's just shocking yeah. to me that, you know, we in, in some ways we live in a bubble when we have so mm-hmm. many structures in place to protect people. And then you realize that, wow, it's not like that in yeah. other places. One out of every seven women is a victim of marital rape. So going back and as we mentioned before, this was not a crime that could be prosecuted really until about the late 70s here in the United States. The rate of rape in the U.S. is 27.3%, but only 9% of rapes are prosecuted with only 3% of rapists being incarcerated for any amount of time. Majority of women who are raped, 94% will experience symptoms of PTSD during the first two weeks following the rape. And while that stat is quoted from our source research, it would more accurately be termed acute stress disorder. Because for PTSD, a diagnosis of that, those have to last at least a month. But with at least 30% of those reporting symptoms, they will meet the full criteria for PTSD. And that span lasts a minimum of nine months for those women. And a third of women who are raped will experience suicidal ideation on top of that. So we're not just looking at who's raped and what the reporting is, but 
really the internal struggle and consequences that are occurring. And it's been found explicitly in the literature that date rape, kind of going back to that, is among the least reported cases, but it is as psychologically damaging as a stranger attack or a stranger I, rape. I would think it would be even more. I, I mean, it's, it's all about individual. trust, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, just you've, you've placed your trust in someone and you're taking a chance. I don't know. It's, yeah. I guess everyone's going to process it differently, but wow. You know, there's a disproportionate amount of rapes that involve members of male only groups like fraternities or athletic teams with a significant number of those events also being classified as gang rapes. Again, not surprising, but still horrifying. And despite high profile cases that get a lot of media attention, not 97% of rapists are not convicted, which is boggling to me because we see all these big lots of flash and media attention to these huge cases. You would just assume that everyone yeah. around the country is actually approaching all these charges in the same way, but it, apparently the stats don't bear that out. Now, also transgender individuals and those with disabilities are twice as likely to be victims of sexual assault or rape. Sure. Again, horrifying. Yeah. And understanding the complexity of this research requires victims to understand that they have been violated. For example, mm -hmm. only 57% of participants labeled the event as rape. So only a little over half of the participants viewed non-consensual oral sex as rape. So again, we have to we have to first figure out what the parameters and the bullet points are in order right. to fit this criteria. But you're running up against all these different cultures within our country that view these things very differently. Yeah, yeah. There's so much intertwined here. But let's look when we're, again, just talking about rape in general and adults who perpetrate this crime against other adults. Let's talk typologies and theories here, as we do with many different offenders in the forensic psych world. Categorizing typologies of rapists help us better understand underlying motivations and characteristics. And if you're treating psychologists, the best treatment strategies for intervention and reoffense prevention plans. So with rape specifically, early typologies were developed by Nicholas Groth, and he had three subtypes, anger, power, and sadistic sexual arousal. And then another well-known typology system was developed out of the Massachusetts Treatment Center by Raymond Knight and Robert Prinsky. And those are sexually sadistic, where sexual and aggressive drives are fused. And then number two was sexually non-sadistic, a sexual preoccupation without the fusion of aggression. Their third typology is pervasively angry, and that is just resulting from generalized anger. And then their fourth typology is vindictively angry, hmm. where the anger is, well, it's resulting from anger that is directed at women. And then lastly, they have an opportunistic category, and this results from general antisociality. So this, I think I probably talked about this during our psychopathy episode, which was what, episode number two, <laughs> where I would refer to these folks as equal opportunity offenders. So they're so antisocial that they are just offending against whatever or whomever is in their way. They have a sexual need that needs to get met. They will, if they come across a woman, they'll sexually offend. If it's a child, they might sexually offend, but we wouldn't put them in the category as being sexually attracted to children per se. And I don't mean this very literally, like anything that moves in front of them, they'll offend against, but they are just so antisocial that it, it doesn't really matter. There's no regard. There's almost no like age range or person or type that they're so attracted to that they need to offend against. It's just 
everyone's an equal opportunity victim as they are an offender. Yeah, I think we're also talking about, especially with individuals who are so very much impacted by their own sociopathy, that they're just seeking stimulation. So it's, right. it's about seeking any kind of thrill, any kind of stimulation, and they take any opportunity to engage in that. That's, yes. that seems to be part of that motivation, which is very different from what is accepted as acquaintance rate. But let's talk about the theories because there are typologies that are really good for looking at associated characteristics and motivations, but they don't really give us a deeper theoretical understanding of the causes of rape. So there are single factor theories, and that focuses on one single aspect to explain the behavior. Evolutionary theory rape is the product of direct adaptation of a man's evolutionary history because it increases the chance of reproductive success. So if he gets as many women pregnant by whatever means, then mm -hmm. his sperm is going to propagate. He's going to survive. He is unconsciously engaging in his own immortality in some way, I guess. Yep. However, other psychological and cultural factors are not addressed in that particular theory. There are feminist theories that propose that rape is an expression of male patriarchal attitudes and values that are prominent within a given society. So basically, it's another way for men to overpower and control women. And it's seen as normal, cultural, specific socializations of men rather than a distorted psychological characteristic, which I think is why some states and some countries mm -hmm. have wildly different views and wildly different laws. Then we also have the socio-cognitive theories. And this one looks at the cognitive distortions, or as you and I call it, the mental gymnastics, that may be the core beliefs of an individual, like women are sex objects, women are dangerous, the male sex drive is uncontrollable, and men are entitled to whatever they want. And that, I remember having a conversation with a colleague when I was working at the jail, and uh -huh. this was a fantastic male medical professional. Like I really enjoyed working with him. Great work ethic, great sense of humor, kind man, but he was very hung up on, oh no, there, there is a point of no return for men. Like they can't stop. They, no, it's like, they can't stop. Like if you're, if you're doing it, cause I had, we were talking about no means no. And he's like, oh, well, no, there's a point of no return. I'm like, mm, sorry, what? I'm afraid we're going to have to have <laughs> sorry, a sir? disagreement on that. Let's get back to work. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's his mental gymnastics, which is something you and I have had to try and attempt to untwist in sex offender treatment. So aside from the single factor theories, there's also multi-factor theories, which unite numerous single factor theories to provide a more complete understanding of rape. So one of those is confluence model of sexual aggression. And this model proposes that rape results from an interaction of a number of risk factors that motivate, disinhibit, and provide the opportunity for sexual aggression. These factors form a perfect storm of traits that are conceptualized as two pathways. So one is the impersonal sex pathway, which is a preference for promiscuity and sexual conquest where forced sex is used as the strategy to facilitate that behavior, which this one feels very on brand for date rape so far. I'm going to put a mark in that column that I'm going to pay attention to that. And then the other is the hostile masculinity pathway, which is characterized by the internalization of sociocultural attitudes that promote masculinity and breed hostility towards femininity. These men are usually controlling and aggressive towards women in both sexual and non-sexual interactions. So men who rank high on factors of both of these pathways that I'm describing are at an increased risk of committing rape. So you have these two pathways, 
But if they merge, that's really bad news. And then we have the quadripartite model of sexual aggression. All right. So there's four factors in this one. These are four factors that motivate rape. The first one is sexual arousal towards sex, consensual or not that it compels men to seek sex regardless of the consent given. So I don't know, maybe this is that point of no return. <laughs> There's also the cognitive distortion that women will enjoy the sex regardless if they're coerced or if they have given the consent. And then we have affective discontrol. This is usually motivated by very unregulated anger. And then they have another, the last factor here is what they call personality problems. But really, it just boils down to, again, very specifically antisocial traits. So the theory holds that one of the four factors will essentially have the primary influence and be the driving force, although you could have a little bit of all of these or a couple of them in an individual. And then we have the unified theory of sexual coercion, which proposes that early childhood abuse, whether it be physical, verbal, or sexual, interacts with three specific factors that can lead to rape. And I should say here that childhood abuse alone is not a main cause of offending behavior in the future. We know that, that that was a myth that was around for a very long time. But the three factors or you know, these sort of pathways to rape in this case are the first is if the individual is very callous and any has unemotional traits. So they give examples of unemotional traits as arrogance, deceitfulness, or emotional detachment. The second pathway is antisocial behavior or aggression with a lot of impulsiveness and a lot of acting out disregard for anyone else. Again, sort of that equal opportunity offender. And then the last one is sexual fantasy. So this is a lot of sexual preoccupation, a lot of sexual compulsivity, and maybe even if there is biological basis of hypersexuality going on with this person. So I'm sure this all sounds familiar to you, Dr. Scott, of all of the different ways that we would sort of look at future recidivism for our offenders that we worked with, the assessments that are out there kind of build on a hybrid of a lot of these theories that we're talking about here. There's so much more we could say, but that's the best overview that we can do regarding what we know about rapists and how we can sort of explain their behavior as a population yeah. that has been studied. But of course, there's so many more individualized factors in each and every case. It's hard to touch on them all, but I, I mean, hope that was a good overview. Yeah, that's a lot of dense information, but it's also vital. And it's also besides, well, besides being vital, it's also relieving that there's so much research that has gone into this, that we're really trying to look at all the underlying factors that will allow us to be predictive of future yeah. behaviors, like especially in the realm of sexual offending, this data is super, super important. Turning to date rape specifically, unfortunately, acquaintance rape is very common, but we don't necessarily get the research like you presented that parses out specifically just acquaintance rape, aside from the legal definitions of crimes. So stats aren't super cut and dried. So it just gets wonky and messy and hard to define, I think. 
Yeah. Well, and then you have charges being pled down. So oh. it's a very muddy view of what's actually happening, despite what the heck we call it. I don't even want to get started on that. But that's something that you, especially if you're a victim of a crime or you're, you have a family member who's a victim of a crime and they've been a, a victim of something horrific and you go in and you see our legal system, which is very deft and really great in so many ways, but you see things being pled down. Yeah. And it, it's something that really can undermine people's trust in the system. System. Oh, sure. I mean, it, it may prop up other people's belief yeah. in the system, but yeah, it's it's a big deal. But anyway, going back to Dr. Koss's research of the women in the study that were reporting being raped, 76% of them stated that they were romantically involved with their attackers. But let's look at more recent research in 2019, based on rape survivors who came into various rape counseling centers for treatment, 70 to 80% of all rapes reported were date rapes. So it's basically stayed the same since Dr. Koss's research. Yeah, that's interesting because you would have expected, I well, I would have expected the rates to be a little bit higher just because there would have been an increase in reporting. But I don't well, know, at least think, it's not higher. That's good. Well, the, I think you could still have maybe low reporting back in the 70s, 80s, increased reporting now, but the numbers of acquaintance relationships have stayed the same, you know, between that sort of 70 and 80%. Got so it. It, it's tracking still. In some of those surveys, as many as one in four young women reported being verbally or physically pressured into having sex within the past year, while one in 10 high school girls and one in 20 boys reported being forced or coerced into sex at some point in their lives. But we do know that more than one third of acquaintance rape victims are between the ages of 14 and 17. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. A third. Yep. So as we turn to victims who are a bit older than high school age, Again, we know that one in four college women report being victims of rape or attempted rape while they were students with 84 of those victims knowing their attacker. Frightening. It's it's really less about categorizing. So really, it's less about categorizing this as date rape or not. And just looking at the relationship between the perpetrator and the victim, that's how we have to weed through all of this research. Yeah. Exactly. It's sort of like, let's get rid of the labels. And if the studies were done well enough to be able to say, okay, who was this person in relation to you? That's where we're going to get the good information on acquaintance yeah. rape. So there's an older meta-analysis study from 1998 that attempted to look at the prevalence of date rape and found some demographic characteristics that were interesting. And so these demographic characteristics were looking at what increases vulnerability to date rape. And so they found some commonalities through all of these studies they looked at where the victim was younger at the age of their first date. They were sexually active earlier in so as younger as well. And then early age of starting menstruation, as well as they found a past history of sexual abuse or prior sexual victimization. And looking at their own beliefs, they were more accepting of rape myths and violence towards women. So other risk factors included date-specific behaviors such as who initiated, who paid for expenses, who drove, the date location and activity, as well as the use of alcohol or illicit drugs. And they asserted that alcohol use, if it occurred within the context of the date, then it can lead to a couple of things. The misinterpretation of friendly cues, such as sexual invitations is how they worded it, diminished coping responses. I'm going to take a breath here. And the female's inability to ward off a potential attack. So although I certainly do not love all of the language used in this 1998 study, I was like 
stepped back from it for a second and said, okay, what, what are the little nuggets of good stuff out of this? And I believe that what they did actually take into consideration was how even the women's or the victim's own views about gender roles and sexual interactions can be important to recognize as we sort of think about early education and intervention and empowerment. So I think like you had said earlier, it's like once you know some information, it could totally change your world. It could totally go, oh, wait, no, I was a victim of a crime and I didn't know that before because maybe some of my core beliefs from my family or from my culture didn't teach me that this was even a possibility. So that was kind of my takeaway from that study, even though I think there were some problematic issues with it. Yeah, but I'm I'm actually really glad that there were some points that popped out at the beginning about specifically about who initiated, who right. paid expenses, who drove. Those things are almost buried, but I think they pop out to me with great importance because it does reflect back to an ongoing idea in the dating world of quid pro quo, or, mm -hmm. you know, that this is some sort of transaction. Well, of course you owe me sex, right, um, right? I'm the one who went through all the work of asking you out. I'm the one who paid for your dinner or I, you know, just all these things that are really, I wouldn't mm -hmm. even say that they're heteronormative. They're just cultural bound manifestations of misogyny and patriarchy yeah. and it's and and an entitlement and that Absolutely. is still an issue and i love when i see people on social media pushing back against those assumptions i love that i really really love that now there's another side of it too where there are some guys who are who are raising their hand going okay you know i get that and i'm not expecting sex but you know dates are expensive so can we work something out in the middle sure. can we figure this out and i'm like yeah have that conversation have an adult conversation about that yeah so Here's another good quote from the 1991 Time article that featured Katie Costner's story, and it sums up the problem with date rape. The quote goes, most women who get raped are raped by people they already know, like the boy in biology class or the guy in the office down the hall or their friend's brother. The familiarity is enough to make them let down their guard, sometimes even enough to make them wonder afterward whether or not they were really raped. That's exactly what you were saying, that, that familiarity and trust and the relationship how impactful that can be. Yeah. Oh, I just think it also triggers so many things in both female and male victims that I have interviewed or evaluated where mm. they, you go to this place where you can be a fully functioning adult. And yet there's something deeply in us that feels like we owe parts of ourselves to other people, or we yeah. owe parts of ourselves to a transaction in order to be validated as good people. And I think that people that are perpetrating these crimes absolutely use that. Yeah. I think that the, when you look, talk about those typologies that you were outlining earlier, that there are people just like when we interview sexually violent predators who are able to pick out their potential victims immediately, mm -hmm. there are tons of studies about that. I think this is the same thing that is perpetrated by the areas of the manosphere that support the pickup artist. Sure. And those types of interactions that you're constantly laying this groundwork for your prey that this is transactional and you do owe me and you're not a good person if you don't put out. It's so psychologically manipulative. Yes. That it is coercion. It's like long game coercion. Yep, absolutely. We also want to quickly acknowledge that there is rampant use of drugs in this type of sexual offense and substances. And just as a side note, a big thank you to this forensic nurse examiner, Albino Gomez from the University of Porto, because he had 
his entire paper about date rape drugs available on ResearchGate. And for those of you that are researchers and students and use ResearchGate, to finally come across a paper that you don't have to request access to is like a unicorn. So thank you, Mr. or Dr. Gomez. I don't know which you are, but it was really nice to read your paper and not have to try and go hunt it down somewhere else. God bless ResearchGate most of the time. (laughs) So in his paper, he opines that the fact that sexual assault, including date rape, has the hallmark of being a non-consensual interaction makes the notion of a drug-facilitated sexual assault very entwined with the phenomenon of date rape. So he notes that consent, by definition, is making an agreeable decision. And a person can certainly become very impaired when alcohol and other drugs intoxicates their ability to think clearly and rationally for themselves, hence that being a barrier to being able to consent to certain activity. Gomez says, quote, this shows that consent is the issue at hand because not being able to resist, being coerced, or not being aware that a sexual assault is occurring are non-consensual sexual acts that arise from drug use. Any substance that is administered to lower sexual inhibition and enhance the possibility of unwanted sexual intercourse is potentially a date rape drug. So he goes on to cover the five most prominent date rape substances, and that includes alcohol and four club drugs, which would be MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly, GHB, Rohypnol, which is Ruthie's or the forget me pill. And of course, ketamine. It's very interesting. I mean, (laughs) it's just very interesting to look at these because versions of MDMA are used in relationship counseling and for the treatment of severe, severe depression in order to Mm -hmm. like establish a baseline and used very well for that. And then ketamine is like sort of the flavor of the month for severe depression treatment as well. So mm-hmm. it's and interesting PTSD. that these, yeah, and PTSD. So using these things, they they do have legit real world applications, but they've come from a culture that started out as partying. And then of course, there's always going to be somebody that uses them for nefarious purposes. But you know, MDMA is structurally similar to amphetamine and mescaline. And both of those can be hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. And then GHB and Rohypnol are powerful sedative or hypnotic agents. Ketamine is what we call a dissociative anesthetic, and it produces a tranquility and disinhibition in very small doses. Of course, you see people dropping on dance floors all the time because they're completely overdoing it, or at least they did decades ago when I went out. I was always the one dragging people (laughs) off the dance floor when they were in a K-hole. Like even even during my party days, I was like the nurse on the floor it's like okay here's a the hole let me get him some Come water on. let me pull him off are you okay Pro- don't step on having, him i know i remember having three people propped up against a wall like making sure people weren't going to trip on them didn't even know him like oh what's my life anyway what um, was your life <laughs> what was my life right i mean these drugs that i've described i mean who wouldn't want euphoria and dissociation for mm-hmm. a lovely break that sounds great in safe circumstances environments and again very legitimate in some areas of treatment, but the effects of amphetamines, hallucinogens, sedative hypnotics, and tranquility states on cognition can Mm. absolutely result in major, possibly dangerous outcomes because they can have a serious effect on a person's ability to make rational decisions and control their behaviors. Now, the other important thing about all these drugs that we've listed is that many people in party situations are not just doing one in a microdose. 
they're doing multiple substances that are then enhancing the qualities of the other one. So we're talking about a pancake effect that is really, really dangerous. But it's not just about you know, what they're choosing to consume either, right? It's about what they don't know they're consuming. Right. Or someone, and this is a case we'll be talking about in a second, someone who would seek out those that were already impaired on multiple substances and then add more to the picture, which is terrible because in larger doses, all of these medications can cause an individual to lose consciousness lose muscle control and have significant memory loss. And there might also be moments of coming to, but with the inability to move. Mm -hmm. And additionally, each of these can have their own investigative challenges. For instance, GHB has a very short half-life and may not be detectable in toxicology testing. And also several of these are odorless, tasteless, and can be mixed in drinks or food very easily. I was really happy to see about two years ago, there was a grad student. No, it was a group of grad students that invented a nail polish coloring or covering like a, like a a gloss coat Uh and a woman with it on her fingernails could put it in her drink and it would detect at least three drugs. I never saw that. How cool is that? Wow. There's also bars that it are now it's starting to happen around the country that if anybody comes up to the bar and says, hey, I just saw somebody put something in somebody's drink, they immediately shut the music off, turn up all the lights mm. and they tell everybody to dump out their drinks and come to the bar and get a new one. Wow. How cool is Love that? that? Right. Yeah. So let's expand our view a little bit to include some same sex relationship issues when it comes to acquaintance rape. I want to give a particularly horrific example out of England that thankfully was adjudicated properly. We're talking about Reynard Tambos Maruli Twa Singa. He's an Indonesian sex offender who was found guilty of 159 sex offenses, including 136 rapes of young men committed in Manchester, England between 2015 and 2017, where he was then residing as a student. We know there were at least 206 victims and possibly more. Sanaga maintained a residence in the heart of Manchester, and that was the base of his operations for his assaults. He lived in an area that was adjacent to sort of the gay bar area in Manchester. He had a predatory plan. Sanaga on a regular basis would hang out outside bars and clubs and connect with people, create a relationship, and then either ply them with drinks at another club, or he would invite them back home for a nightcap. And then he would drug them Mm -hmm. at his home even further. Usually his drug of choice was GHB. He would then attack them while they were unconscious and then record the assaults on camera. Oh, geez. And thankfully... Although he rarely used prophylaxis or condoms on his victims, he tested negative for any sexually transmitted infections at the time of his arrest. So that's the one bright spot in all of this. And the police during the investigation were able to determine that he had been abusing people for years. Oh, I bet. Just years, but they could only make a, a certain number of the charges stick because his main drug was GHB, mm-hmm. which there as a go. hypnotic will remove someone's memory, especially right. if they're combined with alcohol. So uh, they're wow. saying again, estimated that he raped or assaulted at least 206 men in the two years prior to his arrival in the UK. And then he continued it afterwards. And he was a PhD student. Oh, of course. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Terrible, terrible Gosh. guy. I so, mean, 200 within two years, that's 
insane. And that's just, again, the ones that have come forward and prosecuted. I want to expand this because it's something that thankfully is getting some more light on the perpetration of the, thankfully there's finally some light coming out on the perpetration of these crimes against the LGBTQIA community. It's important to remember that 25 to 33% of these relationships are abusive. And this is the same percentage as in straight relationships. So we're here, we're queer, we're just as boring and violent as you. So <laughs> get used to it. We, we are you. Is basically it. what I'm trying to say. And this is because abusive LGBTQ relationships have exactly the same dynamics of power and control as straight relationships, but they frequently go undetected and unreported due to both shame and lack of support from law enforcement. Not so much here in Southern California. There's a lot right. better approach to it, but not so much around the country or around the world. LGBTQ people face higher rates of poverty, stigma, and marginalization, and that will put us at greater risk for sexual assault. They'll face higher rates of hate crimes. And many times the hate crimes themselves will take form, will many times take the form of sexual assault because we live in a culture and society that simultaneously stigmatizes and hypersexualizes our community and our relationships. Yeah. And part of the, part of the challenge in nailing all this down, these exact stats on same-sex sexual assault, rape and date rape in our community is difficult because of the wide spectrum in all these different countries' laws, like we said earlier, for male-on-female perpetration, it, it's just as complex, if not more, within the gay community. And while the U.S. may have, in some areas, more progressive actions against it, other countries' laws against sexual assault are completely insufficient or inconsistent or just completely ignoring of same-sex actions. And parameters and lack of support like this can leave victims convinced that getting law enforcement involved will either make no difference or in some cases could actually further endanger them. Definitely. Yeah. I bet that could be seen in a lot of different ways, depending on who the perpetrator is and yeah. tendency to violence and right. things of that nature. Well, and there are some driving forces here as well in the myths about LGBTQ sexual Absolutely. assault and rape. So one myth, a woman can't rape another woman. When in reality, that assumption is the product of accepted gender role stereotypes that support the idea that women are never violent. Right. Ha, ha, ha. right. Okay. We literally have entire television networks that prove that this is not true. <laughs> over and over again. Over and over again. How can that be? Snapped anyone? Like, yeah. No. <laughs> how can that myth be supported? Snapped. Another one is that gay men are sexually promiscuous and are always ready for sex. The reality is that all people, including gay men, have the right to say no to sex at any time and have that boundary respected. But stereotypes about promiscuity make it more difficult for a gay man to convince others that he was assaulted. Yeah. And then just as you were talking about issues surrounding reporting intimate partner violence. There's also the myth that a woman claiming that she experienced domestic violence perpetrated by another woman is just an excuse for a cat fight. So again, we're calling it something that it totally is not. Also, when a man claims domestic violence or abuse by another man, many times the investigation, if there even is one, oh, it's just two men fighting. Yeah. You know, so it's very much just lumping them into these preconceived notions or categories if they just don't even want to like touch this issue, perhaps. Right. But in reality, again, no, this myth shows the strong tendency, again, to sexualize or fetishize rape and violence in our society. 
there's so many others. Gay men are all predators that are promiscuous, mm-hmm. attracted to all men. That's that was another crazy one. It's like, <laughs> that was the one that me and my gay friends coming out, you would get fixed up by your straight friends. Like, oh, I have the perfect person for you to meet. And it was always like, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> it's just like a dude. like Just, just a guy. I know yeah. a guy. Just, I know him. I think he's gay. But God maybe... forbid I ask you what your type is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, how, how awful. I don't want to get too much information. Don't tell me anything. Yeah. There's these myths about about sex not being romantically connected or significant to gay men, which is not true at all. Gay men are all strong and sexually confident, which is not true. It's not true Mm -hmm. of anybody, anybody that's in therapy, in the therapeutic process, applying those stereotypes of people from certain racial backgrounds or certain cultural stereotypes that like you are a strong person. You're so strong. It's like, right. No, no, give them a break. Right. Like that's why they're in therapy is because not everybody feels strong all the time. Another, if two men or women are in a sexual relationship, then they'll always adopt heterosexual role models. No, that is not true. (laughs) Thankfully, it's an old sort of trope in comedies because you have a a dumb person going, well, which one's the guy and which one's the girl? True. They're making fun of it now. So that means the myth is probably going Uh, away a bit. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. But within the gay community, there's also, well, I mean, I'm going to say in the gay community, I should say LGBTQIA community, bisexuals face an, an entire host of other myths that they just need to make up their own minds. And this comes from all angles, including other members of our community. So it's like you're getting it from the outside and you're getting it from the inside. And then trans individuals can face even higher rates of sexual assault and date rape than other categories. And they face the struggle of representation in the community. 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner compared to 35% of straight women, while 26% of gay men and 37% of bisexual men will experience rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner compared to 29% of straight men. So it's all sort of in there within about a span of 10%. That's significant. That's a lot. Yeah. And then you have 46% of bisexual women have been raped compared to 17% of straight women and 13% of lesbians. So, you know, going back to sort of myths mixing in here with our stats with bisexual individuals that there's this myth that, or this misinterpretation that that means hypersexuality, you know, that they just want to have sex again with whomever, whatever. And they tend to have a lot of sexual assault perpetrated upon them because people are just thinking, oh, well, you'll just be with anyone. So that must mean you're hypersexual and you want it all the time. 22% of bisexual women have been raped by an intimate partner compared to 9% of straight women, whereas 40% of gay men and 47% of bisexual men have experienced sexual violence other than rape compared to only 21% of straight men. And 85% of victim advocates surveyed by the NCAVP reported having worked with an LGBTQ survivor who is denied services because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Yeah, unfortunately, that is starting to emerge in some of the states within our country, which is is <sighs> really, really bad. I mean, it's all done for show and hopefully it will get back to baseline, but we're seeing some of that right now, which is, is really rough. I'd also 
want to encourage everyone after you listen to this episode to go to our Facebook page or go to our social media. We've got a couple of videos we're going to put up. One is incredibly moving and heartbreaking and corrective in a sense in in that it shows straight men's sharing their emotional journey and being coerced into sex with women Mm. when they were not ready to have sex. And it just really pushes back very strongly against this notion. by friends, by parents, by... By their dates, by 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 females. Yeah, So it's not like dad taking them to a prostitute. No, no, we're talking about like actually, you know, wanting to stop over and over again. They're like, they were just not ready for it. Like, you know, they were in the making out, it was getting heavier. And then they felt like they were pushed into it. And it's tragic on one hand, because these guys are, 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 but they're so emotionally open and raw about this thing that needs to be talked about. So anyway, we'll have those links up for you on our site. Yeah. And I mean, just to go on just a small other tangent, there's also so-called corrective rape, which is a term used to describe the rape of a woman who identifies as other than heterosexual expressed by the perpetrator as being intended to put her straight. And it can also be perpetrated against trans men and women, cisgender, gay and bisexual men, and also arises as an issue in so-called honor-based abuse. Other sexual assaults may be carried out for the same purpose. And in these circumstances, the offense may be accompanied by a demonstration of hostility based upon the victim's actual or presumed sexual orientation or transgender identity. Or there may be evidence the offense may be accompanied by a demonstration of hostility based based upon the victim's actual or presumed sexual orientation or transgender identity. Sorry. Let me do that one more time. In these circumstances, the offense may be accompanied by a demonstration of hostility based upon the victim's actual or presumed sexual orientation or transgender identity, or that the offense was motivated by hostility towards persons of a particular sexual orientation or transgender identity. So this is a very scary area here. You know, when you kind of term it that it falls into this category of like honor-based abuse, there's, I mean, we could do another episode on that alone. Yeah, there's also many instances in these charges and the history of charges of gay individuals being raped by straight men in that sort of corrective, well, like, well, this is what you want, mm, you know, gosh. and it's it's really horrific. You know, it's it's been the plot of several different movies. There was one, Come Back to the Five and Dine, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is a really great independent movie that was made back in the, gosh, I think the 80s based on a stage play where a, a young man is raped by his straight high school enemies and which is talk about mental gymnastics is like oh you know you're this you're this deviant so of course i'm gonna do this to you yeah teach a lesson yeah teach a lesson a criminal case that you brought up that is really centered on this has to do with andrew luster Mm -hmm. and he was the son of henry luster a psychiatrist and elizabeth luster his mother was the adopted granddaughter of max factor the visionary makeup artist of hollywood's golden age and eventually overseeing the empire of Max Factor Cosmetics. So let's just say that little Andrew comes from a very wealthy family. He grew up in Malibu and after high school, he moved to Muscle Shoals, California, living on a $1 million trust fund and in a $600,000 cottage on the beach. According to the LA Times, this move and Lester's freewheeling lifestyle weakened his already tenuous ties to the Factor family, which was heavily involved in the arts and philanthropy. So in 2000, Lester was arrested when a student at a local 
College had told police that she had been raped at Lester's home. And on investigation, police charged Lester with drugging three women with the date rape drug GHB, sexually assaulting them and videotaping the assaults. Police found videotapes of the assaults when they searched his home. What and is after... with that? Like, that's your guy too that you were talking about. Well, that, that you know, that goes into your very academically strong presentation earlier about those <laughs> typologies, right? Like, that's specific yeah. because it is that sort of entitlement to, oh, this is what dates are supposed to be. You should put out for me mm-hmm. is very, I mean, it's, it's criminal, but it's different from from violating the rights of others and then recording it for posterity or for yes that's sociopathic i think or i don't know what is that what do you think it's interesting i have a hypothesis but i'll get to in a second after paying one million dollars in bail lester failed to appear in court in january 2003 well they tried him anyway without him present and lester was convicted in absentia and sentenced to 124 years in prison yeah just because you flee they can still move on with that trial without Absolutely. your butt sitting in that chair. The FBI had issued a warrant for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. And in June of 2003, so after he was convicted, he was captured by Dog the Bounty Hunter in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Well, the story takes a weird turn because both Luster and Dog the Bounty Hunter, his last name's Chapman, were subsequently arrested by Mexican police. Luster was handed over to American authorities. And Chapman was initially charged with felony kidnapping, but that charge was reduced to a misdemeanor. His lawyer then advised him to flee Mexico when he was released on bail. It was a whole weird thing. I remember this like little nexus happening. That's not some good (laughs) advice from your attorney. Find a new attorney, dog. Come on. But this goes to kind of my hypothesis a little bit here, that there are reports that when Dog the Bounty Hunter, (laughs) I just crack up like every time I say that out loud on a forensic psychology podcast, when Dog the Bounty Hunter was looking for Lester, like in pursuit of him, he had consulted with a forensic expert who specialized in sex crimes. And that person said that Lester's preference for raping unconscious victims might indicate some sort of necrophilia tendency, which they must be listening to our podcast or something because that was our our last episode talking about necrophilia. And we talked about do we, yeah, we talked about this. We did. Yeah. How like Bill Cosby people were sort of hypothesizing that as well. And not that again, for all the reasons we listened the last well, two episodes ago now, I don't think that this it's like as cut and dry in I that. But I just I That's think a it's a lot so, of mites. It is. It's a lot of mites, but I think it's very interesting to do this act and then record it. And then I think, okay, are they using that recording then for purposes of masturbation later, you know, sexual stimulation? Yeah. And then what does that say about their sexual interest and what they're interested in watching? And maybe it does just all come back to complete control. I'm not sure, but anyway, I thought this was a, a super interesting twist. Long story short, Lester is currently serving his 124 years at uh, Valley State Prison in Chowchilla, California. Good. I mean, yeah. justice seems like it's been done there as it was for the Manchester serial rapist as well. Exactly. Exactly. So that brings us to our last little segment always on how these phenomena are depicted in certain forms of entertainment. And I think for the first time in LA Not So Confidential History, we're not going to talk about a TV show or a film. We're talking about a song because... 
you see the word state rape. And if you're a 45 year old white woman from Southern California, like I am, and sublime was the, uh, you know, soundtrack to your life for some very yeah. formative years, <laughs> this song probably comes to mind. So for those of you who aren't familiar and you can't recall every single line like I can, and no, I'm not going to sing it. Dr. Scott asked if I was going to, because I put the lyrics in our outline. Damn it. Those, those were just for you to reference. So this song recounts a story of a woman who meets a guy in a bar and then she goes for a drive with him. And the night ends in him raping her and him exclaiming, if it wasn't for date rape, I'd never get laid. And the folklore behind that is that Bradley, who's the the lead singer, was the lead singer of Sublime, was actually at a house party one time and a bunch of guys were sitting around together and one guy actually said this and everyone else got really quiet and was weirded out by this guy that said he, if it wasn't for date rape, he'd never get laid. Bradley apparently thought it was interesting enough to write a song about it. So in this song, she reports it to police the next day and he gets a prison sentence and then gets his so-called karma by getting quote, butt raped by a large inmate in prison. And the song sort of ends with the moral of the date rape story is it does not pay to be drunk and horny. So as a young, you know, this came out in 1995 ish. So I was still in high school, but you know, my view then is a little different than it is now that it was like, you didn't hear things like this on the radio. You didn't hear basically a man writing a song and telling a story that resulted in sort of justice for this woman being perpetrated against. Right. So, you know, I think it was, it was definitely novel. It was a very popular song, very much requested on all the, you know, out here, it would have been K-Rock at the time. But I think looking back on it now, there are some problems with it's just this very oversimplified version of this story because we have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. Well, there's a lot, but we have just sort of the most clean, perfect way that justice could be served that we know would never be this linear. So we have the fact that she reported it, right? We know how right. few women do that. The fact that she was believed by police right away. She had the means to look up an attorney the very next day in her phone book and hire an attorney. There was a very quick trial and conviction, like it's just so nice and packaged neat. And then, you know, he gets this very long prison sentence for this one instance of rape. It just, it doesn't speak to a real experience in a lot of ways. So it very much is like, oh, okay, this is a pothead dude's version of how this might go down. <laughs> and and look, there's some legitimacy in that that I don't deny at all. I just think I, like I look at something like that as an older gay man and I look at and a clinician and a forensic psychologist and it makes me think about like, well, there's even implied misogyny and, and homophobia and yes. yes. that, you know, everything up to the point of him getting raped in prison is sort of like what the story should be. And, and this is going to, and I'm not trying to be controversial in saying this, but prison is not for you to be treated with cruel and unusual punishment. Right. And so that's where it gets a little squishy for me. But I understand that like that was like that was a theme. And for many people could feel very fulfilling for someone of like justice is being done mm -hmm. in, a, in a case like that. But in yeah, a, in a very tight 
like short ska song. <laughs> right, know? which is which is cool. Unfortunately, like what we were just talking about the stats before is like the 97% of these don't get right. they don't go to trial, which is just horrifying, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know, you know, snowboarding Shiloh really listened to that album a lot. So <laughs> in closing, I think, you know, this has been a really interesting episode. It was interesting to go back and look at these statistics and kind of spout some of these typologies yeah. and theories and revisit that. You know, I think clearly education and preventative measures need to be geared towards adolescent men and women. And we yes. probably talked about this in treatment a lot too. You know, how many times do we say like, God, if there were just portions of school curriculum that addressed basic like human sexual behavior yeah that went into you know interactions and relationships and and you know adolescent boys and girls they're at stages when they just begin having these intimate relationships and an understanding and these underlying causes of sexual violence that could be really powerful and I think make an impact preventatively. And to know, especially for victims, potential victims, that there can be inadequate responses from the criminal justice system. But, you know, how that all links back to their attitudes and beliefs about sexuality and gender roles would just go a really long way. And I felt like a lot of times you and I, when we were working with these offenders, were really just un covering these basic things that they didn't even understand about oh, not sexual even the interactions, basics. sexuality, yeah. interpersonal interactions, yeah. relationships. Yeah. Right. Right. And just, and then, you know, everything else that was piled on top of that, but yeah, I still believe, you know, that's where a lot of the preventative efforts should be is in education at that age. You also like really put up some points here for the end to wrap this up that I think are so important that although the blame for rape always will lie with the offender, there are factors that can increase risk for acquaintance rape. And it's just important to be informed, you know, be an informed consumer of pursuing relationships and, and remembering these four bullet points that frequent drinking to the point of being drunk or unable to resist sexual advances places you in danger using recreational drugs that are going to impair your judgment or make it difficult to resist sexual advances is dangerous. And we have to really challenge outdated beliefs about sexual roles, such as thinking that someone who pays for a date has the right to expect sex. And that absolutely is so strong. And it's like I said earlier, it may be an unconscious thing that exists in you where when you're in the pre under the pressure of making a decision like that, and you've had a couple of drinks in your system, it's even more complex. And then prior history of rape or sexual victimization is always going to be a factor that can put you at further risk. So we've linked a really good resource for talking about this with your teenagers. It's in the show notes. Please mm -hmm. look at that. Please share it with your other parenting friends. We really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for bearing with us. I don't think I have anything at the end to wrap up. I know at the top, you mentioned our Discord. If you guys want to be a part of that chat, go ahead over to our Patreon page and join at the intern or doctorate levels and you will get the link to chat with us over there. So I think I'm going to see what they've been chatting about since we've been recording. Yay. I'm going to go right. eat dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Well, good luck with your big move this weekend. Thank you. And everyone, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. 
We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye folks. <laughs>